This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey, welcome to Kurt Vonnegut Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and you can find more of my work over at substack.com slash at Gabe Hudson. You can also go over there if you want to sign up for this podcast and newsletter. Anyway, today I am super excited because we've got a real rock star writer on the show, Akil Sharma. That's right. Akil Sharma's in the house. Akil's author of the novel Family Life. He's a regular contributor to The New Yorker and has won a slew of literary awards, including the Penn Hemingway Award and the International Dublin Award. He also teaches at Duke University. Now, Akil Sharma and I go way back. We've been through a lot and seen a lot together. So what you're about to hear is Akil Sharma unfiltered and unplugged and let me say this just because i'm friends with a writer or know them i always keep your needs at the front of my mind and i don't let any of my guests off until i've made sure to get something special and unique for you dear listener so please join me now as we enter the heart and mind of one of the great writers of our time Akil Sharma. Let me just first begin by saying how much I love you. Okay. Uh, like, um, what a good friend you are. And I, in some ways, like I think of a good friend as somebody who is helpful. You've never been especially helpful to me. <laughs> right? You've never been especially helpful to me. Um, but there was one time I was very helpful to you. Actually, there's been more than one time. There was one time I was very helpful to which, you and your career. I did some good things. Which one are you thinking about? Like when you were helping edit my stories? Is that what no, you No. Uh, like, like singing your praises to somebody and somebody else being like very excited about your work and then me being like, oh, yeah, he's the greatest and his work's the greatest. Because uh, I feel that way. I mean, I I was thinking more about the time when I was separated from my ex-wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had lost my mind. And yes. you took me for a long walk around Prospect Park. That's when I think of as sort of the real, like, man, you are great. You are the best. And, um, like, what when I think about you as wonderful, it's always been, like, how much you've made yourself available emotionally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm helpless about that. I, I don't like have great boundaries uh, because I wasn't raised in an environment where anybody had any boundaries. And so I'm like very emotionally available and I care a lot, you know, which I think some people could call like my one fault. You know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, this guy is like super satiric and funny. It's one, you know, deficiencies. He actually cares. You know, I've always felt that a little bit. My mother is hard of hearing, and at one point she wanted to get a hearing aid. 
Yeah. Right. And my father is a depressive, and he said to her, "If by chance some good news does come for you, I'll write it down." <laughs> right. <laughs> so, that is so funny. As, as you know, but the audience does not know, I had an older brother. Yeah. Uh, who, when I was ten and he was fourteen. He dived into a swimming pool, struck his head in the bottom of the pool, and lay underwater for about three minutes. Yeah. And that caused massive brain damage for him. Right, right. And so when he was, um, when they pulled him out, um, because even if you pulled somebody out after three minutes, you know, your lungs have collapsed, and so you can't process oxygen. Right, right. So the actual uh, brain damage will be of seven minutes, nine minutes, something like that, right? Yeah. And what happened, um, so he couldn't, after that accident, he could never walk or talk or he became blind, right? Were you present at that accident? No, no. Okay. Uh, I was a few hundred feet away or a few hundred yards away. Okay. Um, So you learned of it right away. Yeah, within minutes, within minutes. How did that impact you uh, when that happened to your brother? What was your brother's name again, please? Uh, Anoop. Anoop. And he, he was like all set to go to Bronx Science, right? Which yeah, you know, was like yeah. the elite school in New York City. So he was on this like path that your parents felt like, oh, it's all coming together now. Our plan is happening. And then there was this great tragedy. Yeah. I mean, how did I experience it? I felt a lot of shame. You know, how, so? that, how come? Because I, I was glad there wasn't me. Okay. Survivor's guilt. Yeah, that I was glad it wasn't me, man. Uh, I felt a lot of shame. I felt I couldn't be trusted. Okay. Uh, I felt I was a bad person. Yeah. Uh, Then there was also a lot of guilt because I, you know, like my parents wanted me to constantly be talking to him. Like to to him. Wow. uh, To stimulate him. Um, Yeah. And I just wanted to watch TV. Of course, you know, I didn't want your kid. Time. Yeah, I didn't want to spend my time taking care of him. So all the time you're in your house, you feel often this kind of mixture of guilt and shame and a burden of sorts that there is this expectation from the parents that you be talking to yeah, your brother. All the time, you know, I mean, they would wow. tell me, they wow. would tell me, he's your brother. You know, what kind of a person yeah. are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then my father was depressed. Right. Yeah. Understandably so. I would be too, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's very challenging when you're taking care of a sick person. Uh, right. The sort of sick, his illness, his, you know, my parents, um, so my brother was in a hospital for two years and then they right. brought him home to take care of him. Right. Because the quality of care you get in a hospital is not good. Right. Right. Like, um, like I, my brother was fed through a gastrointestinal tube. Yeah. And you have to give the milk because it's very dense, the calorie, right. you know, the isocal milk in small increments. Yeah. Right. And if you, the nurses would forget, right. Or they'll be behind schedule. You know, Gabe, you're much kinder than I am, right? You're always trying to see things from people's point of views. Um, yeah, and so I think the, so. <laughs> I, 
So these nurses, you know, they must have been very busy, right? Yeah. They would be yeah, very yeah. busy. Um, and so sometimes they would come late to him. So instead of giving him his milk, a little bit of milk every half hour, they would give him a full can at once. Right. Right. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it he would vomit. Right. So when he vomits, he also vomits up all of his medicine. Right. Right. So he'll vomit up his seizure medicine. He'll vomit up uh, all these other things. And then what do you do? Right. Like you don't know if you give him, can you give him the medicine again? Will the doctors allow that? Right. If you are, if you give him the medicine again, are you overdosing him? Right. Right. So this extraordinary strain. Uh, and so my parents brought him home and began taking care of him. And I, I mean, I remember the first day I came back from school. Um, until then, I'd been going to school and he had been in the hospital. It had been two separate worlds. Right. And now those worlds were united. Yeah. And I remember coming home and seeing him in his bed and feeling this astonishing guilt. Yeah. Like I was... I was getting to have my life and he was not and feeling um, that surely I must be punished for this. Right. Like yeah. I was getting too much luck. I mean, that's just a tremendous amount of pressure to have on a kid's head. Yours, metaphorically speaking, yeah. it's too much. I mean, if, it seems quite natural that you would have had really wild thoughts like that. Um it seems natural. I mean, do you question the fact that like, you know, one of my best friends in college, uh, Rucker Stallenhoff, he actually two years after college, he died skiing. He like hit a tree wow. and his parents pulled the cord on him. Like, you know, within a day or so, it was very clear he would not be able, you know, he was basically just on life support or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and we went to the funeral and I gave a talk and a eulogy and all that. But I mean, when you look back, are you surprised that your parents elected to? And was that like the right thing that medical folks were saying is like, yes, let's keep this individual alive. Or is that have something to do with like a religious perspective or because I, I sort of I remember when Rucker, his parents pulled the cord, it was like, you know, it was a big Catholic church. We had the um the, the funeral in and I felt like it had something to do with that. Like they just sort of thought, okay, let's pull the cord and like, he's going to go to that heaven and yada, yada. He was um Dutch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, with my parents, uh, so there was no sense that he would get better. Yeah. At least I didn't feel that way. I don't think the doctor said to him, he would get better. One of the interesting things is when you're in a situation like that, you meet, all sorts of, again, you know, you're much kinder than I am, Gabe, right? Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, scum. Yeah. Who are willing to exploit uh, poor, desperate people. Right. Tell you that they can get your your child okay. Right. So we had that all the time, man. And my parents really, some of these were just grifters, right? Right, right. You know, they'll say anything to take your money. Yeah. And some of them were delusional. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking about the grifters. Yeah. Right? So did they present themselves as like medicine people, you know, like. So we had doc, we had doctors, medical doctors who had, uh, uh, who 
had basically, like I dealt with I who basically would say things which are not true, right? You know, and built up sort of this reputation. Yeah. Um, because there were people who were desperate. I mean, we see the same thing now, right? Like all these people who are, there are all these people with anxiety disorders who, uh, you know, can find actual medical doctors who say to them, yeah, yeah, you have this thing wrong and you need this thing or that thing. Right. Uh, so we had those, we had those, we had pundits, um, you know. And for those that might not know what a pundit is, what is a pundit? So it's a priest, a Hindu priest. Um, yeah, yeah. One of them wanted us to fly him from India to on the Concord. Okay. You know, just disgusting, you know, disgusting stuff, man. No shame. The, Did you ever feel like it would be like the, the right thing to do to let for somebody to to let him go or to, I don't know what. Yeah, by, the problem is that letting him, it wasn't like he was on uh, life support. Life, okay. Right? He was being fed through a G2, but he was otherwise okay. Oh, he was f mentally pretty functioning. No, 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 mentally he was totally gone. But okay. like to, for him to die, you would have to remove food and water from him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. wasn't like, you know, you remove the thing that's keeping him breathing and right. he'll die within minutes. Or if you remove uh, the thing that's keeping his heart beating and he'll die in minutes, this would have been like three weeks of him slowly dying. Oh, okay. okay. You know, that's what happens for most people. Right. Uh, have you I, met other people that this happened to just because it happened to you? Yeah, um, it, I yeah. mean, I met I met these people, talked to these people, especially after my brother, after my book came out, the one about right. my brother. Right. Um, then I talked to them. Uh, and, and did they have somewhat similar experiences? It's like, yes, we had this one family member that was like not there mentally, but like was kept alive in the home for quite some yeah, time. Yeah. That was yeah. So the so that I've had. You know, the worst things in the world happen all the time. Right, right. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm only laughing because I'm probably going to, like, walk outside and get hit by a car later today or something. But they do. They happen all the time. And we all try to pretend like that's not true. Yeah. You know? The, um, you know, my after my brother died, my mother, after my brother died, my mother said to me, that she had somehow thought that if she rem if she kept praying and kept taking care of my brother, God would be shamed into fixing him. So she was I, caught in this battle of will with God, you know, yeah. her sense of God. I could under I mean, I can see the logic. It's I I don't think it's something necessarily I would think, but like that makes sense to me, you know. And I mean. Your parents were like in the worst kind of prolonged, protracted grief, yeah. I presume. Yep. yep. I mean, it, the worst torture of sorts or a terrible torture being done upon them just by circumstances outside their control. And so minds that are pressed with that much pressure, emotional pressure and grief who knows what they will reach for, mm -hmm. but it seems very human of her to have had that thought, you know? I, I would agree. I would yeah. agree. 
and your dad, you felt like he, like you saw your parents weep with some frequency when you were growing up. I saw my parents weep a little bit and it wasn't good for me. No, I didn't see them cry. I saw them shouting. Really? Okay. Yeah, angry all the time, man. Angry. Okay. All so that was like the, their surface was like yeah. they were just angry at the world. Yeah. They were angry at the world. They were angry at me. They were angry with each other. Yeah. You know, now, that, you went on and did a lot of amazing things. Like, I mean, you know, st the kinds of things that parents would typically sort of really be proud of. Like, you went to Princeton. I'm sure you won some awards there. Like, you, you published a novel shortly after you graduated. You went to Harvard Law School. I mean, did they f exhibit pride then? No. No, no, I mean, my uh, somebody was telling me recently that they had attended this party that that my family had for when I graduated Harvard Law School, and my mother came up to him and said, "Oh, if only I'd become a doctor." Huh. Uh, I remember the first time I published a story in a major national magazine. Uh, my mother came up to me and said, "You know, it makes me want to vomit." Wow, and that is not what you want to hear. Yeah, I, but I think there was a there was a real desire to cause damage, right? Right, not partially. Um, you just want to damage because you want to damage, right? Because you've been hurt, maybe like you've experienced this great tragedy and you're angry at the world, and so you want to lash out and you lash out at whoever's there, and that happens to be your other kid. I, I I don't keep um, you and I are different and right yeah. you're you're oftentimes you're thinking uh, that there's a psychological explanation right I yeah. always hope so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but evil isn't because of something evil is yeah 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 right uh, so I'm not calling my parents evil right I'm not right 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 but some of the behavior is evil right right. Also, I think there's different kinds of evil. There is crazy evil that just someone has that. Then there's evil of like, I'm not doing the worst thing in the room, but I'm not doing anything to stop it either. Yeah. And I'm laughing with it. You know, there's yeah. these variations of evil, I think. Yeah. Um, and the really crazy evil, I think, is hard. Doesn't have exactly a psychological explanation. Mm -hmm. I don't think. I want to read now a little bit from this piece, this personal history piece you wrote in The New Yorker that was published a couple years ago. It's called Why I Hate My Best Short Story. Recently, while organizing a new collection of my short stories, I revisited a work that I hadn't read in many years. If You Sing Like That For Me, which was first published in The Atlantic in 1995 when I was 24 years old. This story is told from the perspective of an older Indian woman, Anita, who is looking back on the first few months of her arranged marriage. Anita chronicles how, as a young bride, she went from being initially scared of her husband to suddenly falling in love with him briefly, before becoming alienated once again. If you sing like that for me is probably the best story I've ever written, and certainly the most lauded. It's also a story I've grown to hate, I've grown to hate this story because I know how deeply it bears the mark of the woman who inspired it, a woman I'll call X. X was a family acquaintance, 
I met her when she was 40 years old and I was 15. I'd grown up extremely isolated from the outside world, both because my family were conservative Hindus and because my parents were taking care of my older brother, who was severely brain damaged. And the particular horrors of his condition, the gastrointestinal tube, the nebulizer, the urinary catheter, and the infections it fermented made me feel desperately alone. When a person would visit our house, I would become almost hysterical with excitement. I would follow the person from room to room, because when they were there, there was some relief from the feeling of suffering unseen. X, I know, I know now, was a deeply troubled person in ways that most adults and perhaps many children would easily be able to detect. But to my sheltered teenage self, she just seemed pretty and soft-spoken. X seduced me using the same steps that many adults use to seduce children. First, there were long, lingering conversations about things X had little interest in, such as comics and science fiction novels. Then there were trips to the school events or the mall that she offered to chaperone. And then eventually, there was sex, which to me was the most meaningful thing in the world. I was a child who felt unloved, and to be touched and kissed made me feel I mattered. When her husband was traveling for work, X and I would talk on the phone late at night for hours. My room was beside my parents, and I would lie in bed and whisper, which somehow made me breathless. When we were together, we would stand facing each other and hold hands and declare, I marry you, I marry you, I marry you. Because X had heard that Muslims could get married by saying that phrase three times. She told me that the reason we'd first had sex was because I had looked at her in such a forceful and passionate way that it seemed as if I was demanding that we make love. And she had no choice but to give in. I know now that I was not capable at that age of seducing anyone with my eyes, and that X's comment served as a way of absolving her of responsibility for our relationship. I was not the first underage person she'd slept with, but at the time, I believed her. I was flattered by the idea that I could possess such a powerful charisma. The premise of if you sing like that for me, derived from what I knew about X's unhappiness in her marriage, and in particular from something she once told me during one of our late night phone calls. She told me that there was only one brief period when she had loved her husband so much as she loved me. The first line of the story goes like this. Late one June afternoon, seven months after my wedding, I woke from a deep sleep and love with my husband. I did not know then, lying in bed and looking out the window at the line of gray clouds, that my love would last only a few hours and that I would never again care for Regender with the same urgency. So I'll pause there. And like, I want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about the short story and, and see how your feelings are about the story now. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you, the novel that I'm working on right now is yeah. about my experiences with this woman. Uh, right. And that time. And some writing that it makes me feel trapped in that past. Yeah. You know, I don't, like, I don't wish to write about these things. Right. Right? Like, I I want to put these things behind me. And in many ways, they are behind me. You know, I'm a 52-year-old guy. What does this yeah, have yeah, to yeah. do with me? Happy professor at Duke. Maybe yeah. the whole the whole shebang. Yeah, I have a wonderful daughter. Yeah. 
but I'm, it's funny to be to go back there and to feel, uh, to see bits and pieces of myself still present, you know, right. things that were caused by that. Right. Um, like it teaches you to lie, you know, being in a relationship like that. Right. It teaches you that the secret life is, is more real right. than, the, than, the, than the open life. Yeah. Um, the. I mean, I think like there's also like some bro kind of guys that would be like, wow, that sounds really great, you know, for like a 15 year old to suddenly have that. But I mean, I think what you're you're saying is that like it's fundamentally damaging and like obviously not healthy. There was actually there was a woman editor that I several women I've talked to have. Um, there was a woman editor who said, but isn't sex with an older woman great? Uh, which I just thought was insane. Right, right. Whereas, of course, if you imagine a 15-year-old girl having sex with a 40-year-old teacher. I think that's called Lolita. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Immediately begin to think, that's not cool. You know, that sort of, it messes people up. Right, right. Like, so what kind of damage? I mean, I thought that was interesting about what you said. You know, it teaches you that the secret life is the real life. It teaches you to lie. I mean, what other, like, ways that it did it sort of, you know, dent your psyche or your spirit in meaningful ways that are damaging, do you think? So, I mean, it was a, it was a very strange and complicated relationship. Yeah, obviously, uh, yeah. Um, so... The it's a way if you get involved in something like this, it's right. a way of actually not you're almost it's, you know, like the intensity of lying is so great. Mm -hmm. Right. That that's what you think of as love. Right. So these relationships, they they teach you that this is life and everything else is false. Right. Right. They also. um when you are lying, you begin to feel you don't have to do the work needed to be truthful. Right. Right. You don't have to, because the, the, you don't have to do the, so you're inside this intense relationship where this person is lying uh, and has put herself at enormous risk. Right. Right. And so that means that you don't have to worry about, um, uh, you don't have to have a girlfriend. Right. Because what could this ordinary relationship offer you that this uh, craziness does not offer you? Right. So like after I, so like some of my earliest relationships were with married women. Right, right. Uh, or really in, so one, two, three, four, you know, it's just sort of like, I'm, trying, I'm thinking of the married women that I went out with when I was younger. Right, right. Because that was how I found excitement. Yeah. You know? And as I'm talking it out with you and listening to you, one thing that's occurring to me is, like, there's a lot of emotions you feel when you're intimate with someone like that. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that's just natural. And But you were not able to talk about that with anybody. Yeah. Right? I mean, you weren't. 
that's that honesty. That's a kind of honesty you're talking about. I know that's not precisely what you meant. You meant more like just telling the truth, but mm -hmm. just also giving voice to what your feelings are surrounding those events um, is something that was just permanently pressed mute. You were not allowed to talk to anybody about it. And yeah. so that's a really weird thing, you know, because you don't develop, you know? You you need to be able to talk to your friends about these things. Okay, now I, now I okay. see it. Yeah. Before we go, I want to ask you, are there like any books that you recommend, just like some contemporary writers out there that you've been like really feeling their work and you're excited about? Uh, I really liked uh, my year of rest and relaxation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By Bio, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful book. I do too. The Mars Room is great. Yeah. And I was trying to learn to write among the, I mean, among the things that I, that I have done over the years is read a book and then read it backwards. Right. So read the last sentence, read the second to last sentence. That's very interesting. Uh, and I remember because it's, you're removing purpose from, from doing that, right? It's like when you're proofreading a legal document, you read it backwards. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And I remember doing that with um, uh, Tolstoy's novella, Childhood, uh -huh. and being astonished by how much, how active the verbs were. Yeah, yeah. Right? How Because you always wonder, like, it's hard to picture Tolstoy's characters. Right. And it's interesting, and yet the works feel alive. And it's interesting to read. For me, what I found interesting was reading it backwards, realizing the the verbs are not how you and I typically use verbs. You know, he walked down the hallway, he did this, he did that. Right. There's always something occurring that is somebody's moving, somebody's doing something. Somebody's, the verb is not he walked down the hallway. It's always more like he reached for this thing. Uh, he spat in a corner. There's always sort of a uh, character inside the the verb right oh um, i like that there's always character inside that, the verb i found that really astonishing like i had not realized that yeah uh, and so it's 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 interesting like i remember reading him backwards i remember reading Chekhov backwards right all these different things that you do to learn you know to force yourself to learn i had a lot of fun talking to you so thank you so much for making the time Oh, Gabe, I just love you, man. I love you too, brother. Had a blast chatting with Akil Sharma. So now is when you go buy Akil's novel, Family Life. And if you look in our show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to buy it. Also, go buy his story collection that we just discussed in the episode, A Life of Adventure and Delight. There will be a link for that in the show notes. And also in the show notes, I will include a link to some of Keel's other writing. Now, when you're online, if you want to come say hi, you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Gabe Hudson. And if you want to find me on Instagram or threads, I am at Gabe G Hudson. Also, Go subscribe to Kurt Vonnegut Radio Podcast and Newsletter over at Substack and join our community. And if you can afford the paid subscription, it's $5 a month 
And each week you get one podcast episode handcrafted with love and care sent directly to your inbox. Plus bonus content. Look, if I weren't making this podcast, I would definitely be a paid subscriber because I am making the podcast I want to listen to that I wish existed. Jude Brewer was executive producer and editor for this episode. Stay safe out there, people, and I'll see you back here next week. Peace.